When the church in Corinth gathered together for the Christ meal, one seat at the table was noticeably absent, the Lord's. The apostle writes in a corrective tone to tell the church that what they are practicing in worship is not representative of Christ. He returns their focus upon the Lord by showing how the Lord's Supper in the present remembers the Lord's death in the past and looks to the Lord's judgment in the future. This message preaches from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. It is part of a preaching series through 1 Corinthians to the church. The title of this sermon is The Lord's Supper. Welcome to the Southside Sermons Podcast. I am Christopher Campbell, pastor of Southside Baptist Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. This message you're about to hear is from God's Word and is offered to you with this prayer that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey His Word. May your faith be strengthened in Jesus, and may you grow in your knowledge of Him. The Lord's Supper. Verse 20 says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For the church in Corinth, celebrating the Lord's Supper was the intention of the worshipers. But for the church in Corinth, celebrating the Lord's Supper became an indictment against them instead. They were not eating what they thought they were eating. They were deceived, but not by God. They had deceived themselves by allowing the practices of the world around them to inform the worship of the church instead of God's word informing the worship of the church. The apostle declares in horror, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. What is taking place under the name of the Lord's supper has an empty chair at the table that belongs to the Lord. And the Lord has vacated the chair. The Lord has graced them with his absence. The Lord is not participating in whatever meal they have prepared for themselves in his name. There can be no Lord's Supper without the Lord. I've heard of this practice called the empty chair. And there are different expressions and reasons for the practice of the empty chair, but the result is the same. An empty chair is placed at a table for a meal and deliberately left empty. And it becomes Jesus's chair. Jesus is invited to sit at the table in that empty chair. So whenever someone looks at the empty chair, they're reminded that Jesus, our Lord, is dining at table with us. And for some, this practice becomes a source of comfort if that empty chair used to be filled by a loved one no longer present. For others, it is a reminder of the Lord's presence with us in fellowship, the fellowship of God's Son, as 1 Corinthians puts it, the fellowship that we're called into but in the Lord's Supper, the reality is we do not invite the Lord to our meal. 
but the Lord invites us to his meal. It is the Lord's Supper. And for centuries, from Corinth all the way to today, the church of Jesus Christ has had to guard against and be rebuked over and corrected concerning wrong ideas and attitudes and actions in the worship of God. The church should repent of this empty chair mentality in worship. It does not belong in the worship of God. It is an error. The church should repent of an idea that says to God, God, here is an empty chair. Here is an empty pew. Here is an empty sanctuary. Here is an empty heart even. We just come here today, Lord, empty, that you might fill us up as if we are some kind of a gas tank. We must rid ourselves of the idea that we invite God into our worship. We do not. We call you, Lord, to join in our celebration. We summon you to sit at our table, which we have prepared, and we invite you, Lord, to fill us up. That's wrong. We must worship like King David did. David had it right. He said that God prepares the table. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's his house. How many times, church, have we created something that we thought was worship and pulled out an empty chair hoping that God would join us in it? How many times have we done this when we ought to have emptied ourselves from such arrogance and self-centeredness so as to join God in true worship that belongs to him and him alone? Our attitude about worship has been warped, and it is so easily warped. And that is why, church, our text today speaks a word of correction. This text speaks more than just a word of correction to us, for it also speaks a word of grace. All the while we are trying to invite God into our worship, God is so graciously inviting us into his worship. And all the while we are trying to invite God to sit at our table, God so graciously invites us to sit at his table. And God has made a way for this to happen. And it is not of our own doing. It is all of God's doing through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, will we stop what we are doing? Will we humble ourselves? Will we rid ourselves of impure thoughts and impure attitudes? And by God's grace, will we hear and receive the gospel's invitation to sit at the Lord's table and enjoy a more blessed fellowship than anything we could ever manufacture ourselves in a million lifetimes. First Corinthians chapter one, verse nine said, God is faithful. 
by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is who God is, and that is who God, by his amazing grace, has made us to be. There was something wrong in the activities of the worship of God for the church in Corinth, and by now, this is no surprise to us, and what was wrong ultimately falls under the heading of idolatry still. The apostle is still addressing this sin of idolatry because it is such an easy sin to fall into in our flesh while we're in this world. We walk by faith and not by sight, but our flesh still wants to see, doesn't it? The apostle addresses this error in the church that revolved around one of the highest, most wonderful, most glorious, visible expressions of the gospel in the gathered worship of the church that portrays God's relationship with humanity and the fellowship of believers with one another in unity, in peace, and in fellowship in Jesus Christ, and that is the Lord's Supper. And whatever the church in Corinth was practicing, it wasn't the Lord's Supper. The church in Corinth was desecrating the Lord's Supper. And so the apostle brings to them a corrective by speaking about who? The Lord. How else will we know about what belongs to the Lord if we do not know our Lord? and what he has done for us. The church in Corinth needed to return their attention to the Lord. The focus of their worship had wandered, and we, church, need to do the same. We need constant repetition and reminder that what we do in our gathering as Christians in the name of the Lord is about the Lord and for the Lord. And so the apostle speaks three things that belong to the Lord. First, the Lord's Supper. Second, the Lord's death. And third, the Lord's judgment. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's death, and the Lord's judgment. And the apostle writes about what belongs to the Lord from three points of view. A present view, he says in verse 17, I do not commend you, that's present. A past view, he says in verse 23, what I also delivered to you, that's past. And a future view, he says in verse 32, so that we may not be condemned, that's future. The Lord's Supper says something about our past, present, and future. And participating in the Lord's Supper together, we, the church of Jesus Christ, proclaim the Lord and his work. The Lord is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So first, the Lord's Supper. This is a present view. Look with me again at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because... When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. The apostle began this chapter, chapter 11, commending the church, 
praising them for maintaining the traditions even as I delivered them to you, he says in verse two. But here in verse 17, there is one such tradition that they misremembered and that he does not praise them for. Instead, he corrects them. This is the theme of this section. It has to do with this Lord's Supper. The apostle wants the church to make sure they are practicing it correctly. Church, isn't it easy to criticize and to find fault with someone? There is a right way to show proper criticism and to correct proper faults. And the apostle is modeling for us here a way to do that. He began first by commending the church or praising them for what they were doing well in verses two through 16. And he built upon what they were doing well by imparting to them understanding. And he did all of this before correcting them as he is now. Here's a practical and helpful word to us all, especially those naturally inclined to criticize. If we are going to correct someone in a way that they will hear us because we love them, we might try to commend them first for something that they are doing well. Remember from the beginning of this letter to the Corinthians, the apostle addresses every issue from a place of thanksgiving to God and praise for them because of who God has made them to be. Likewise, we must contextualize our correction. We must offer correction from a place of praise and thanksgiving and love. Don't be such a negative person. Find a positive. If anything, it will help you to see that not everything is as bad as you think that it is, and it will help you then to truly help others. So after praising them, the apostle then corrects them. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. The apostle is not polarized or partisan. It is not all or nothing. He recognizes what is good and he calls it good. Likewise, he recognizes what is bad and he calls it bad. What was bad? Verse 17 says, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. We know that by definition, the church is a gathering of people. The church in Corinth was doing what the church does at a minimum. They were coming together. But the outcome of their coming together was not good. Notice how the text says, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That's language that we use in marriage vows, for better or for worse. Perhaps what stands out the most from that statement is something we've already seen before in this letter. There's no middle ground. There's no middle of the road option. Our gathering as a church does not produce a neutral effect. It is either for the better or for the worse. And if you are in a marriage relationship, you know this to be true. If your relationship is just getting by, then it's really getting worse not better, right? Worship is the same way. When you leave this sanctuary, when you depart from the saints gathered in the presence of God, our attitude, our disposition, 
our outlook on life, our body, soul, our spirit should leave better than when we entered, not worse, because we have been in the presence of God together. We have glimpsed heavenly glory. We have refocused our minds on the gospel message. Whatever our week before has given us, we're refocusing for this new week. We have been reminded of who God is, both as creator and redeemer. We have rehearsed in our worship what God has done, giving to the world his son Jesus, who died on the cross, shedding his blood that we have sung about for our sin, who was buried to take on the grave and raised again in power to life again in demonstration of the righteousness of God. We renew ourselves again by God's grace and God's gospel, receiving strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. By faith, we are again sustained by God's grace for yet another day. This was not the case for the gatherings of the church in Corinth. Look with me at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In coming together in action that represents unity and common fellowship in Christ, an outworking of the gospel of Christ, the church in Corinth was doing the opposite of that. The church in Corinth was perpetuating divisions, not unity. We un must understand how the church would have gathered in this day. They would not have gathered in a sanctuary like this. They would have gathered in homes. They would have gathered around a meal, a fellowship meal called the love feast. And this was very common in their culture for social gatherings too, for pagan gatherings. The food served would have been food offered to idols. So gathering in worship and food were enjoined together in this activity. Baptists have the right idea, don't we? Faith, food, fellowship. And the church gatherings weren't too unlike our Wednesday night midweek gatherings when we would come together around a meal and fellowship and pray and hear God's word as the church. It's very much like this, uh, what was happening here in the homes. Now the way these Roman homes were designed, there would be a room for eating for all who were of the upper class, the elite called the triclinium. And for the rest, the commoners, the lower class, was the atrium. The Roman culture practiced this kind of division such that it was commonplace. It was just the way that it was. Little thought was given to it. The problem here, though, was when the church of Jesus Christ gathered in Corinth in the name of Jesus Christ and reflected attitudes of culture more than the attitudes of Christ in their divisions like this. The church was worshiping the Lord as the world worshiped their idols and bringing desecration to the worship of God in the process. Their divisions were not having the effect that they thought. They thought their divisions were recognizing the 
upper class from the lower class, but instead, as the apostle says in verse 19, their divisions were actually showing who is a genuine believer and who was not. Verse 20 says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Sometimes, church, it's helpful to have an outside perspective. You see, they were so entrenched in what they were doing, they couldn't see how appalling it was. But the apostle hears about this, and he is able to see what is happening for what it is. This is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And we are compelled then to ask, whose supper is it? If it's not the Lord's Supper, whose supper is it? And we will see that it is their own supper. It's an idolatrous affair. Notice this church. The Lord's Supper is not what they ate because it was not the Lord's Supper that they were preparing for. Our preparation for worship says everything about who we worship. And the church in Corinth was not prepared to worship the Lord, and it showed. This will be expounded very shortly. Look with me at verse 21. The apostle says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Notice the words, each and his own. Where is the focus of their meal? Each his own. We've been working on this with our children in our own home. At mealtime, they want to begin grabbing food and eating it before all is even plated and on the table. We tell them to sit with their hands in their lap or sit on their hands if they have to and wait, wait for us all to begin. This is not a time about eating alone, but this is a time for family. This is family, food, faith, fellowship time. Apostle has a similar reaction in verse 22. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I can't help but be touched by that phrase, church of God. It is yet another reminder of who we are. We, church, belong to God. And to desecrate the worship of God is to, at the same time, despise the church of God. What a tragedy. This is the present view. What the church in Corinth is doing is wrong, and they are not to be praised for it. They have corrupted the Lord's Supper, and the corrective is to look backward. What is the Lord's Supper about? Someone said it this way, the Lord's Supper is about what God is presently doing, and that's true. And that he is making us one and giving us peace with God and dining with us in fellowship. But this Lord's Supper is made possible because of what God has done in the past. So the apostle takes a past view to look at the Lord's death. And by the Lord's death, we see the Lord's obedience and humility and how we ought to consider yet again one another. Look with me at verse 23. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Notice how the apostle is looking backward here. He's calling to their mind what he has already received and already delivered to them at a previous time. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's death. When did that happen? It happened at a very definite time. It happened at Calvary. That was a one-time action, and that work is done. Romans chapter six, verses nine through 11, I'll remind you, says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. The bread and cup, the body and blood, these are the person and work of Jesus clearly rehearsed in the Lord's Supper for us, which is all about the Lord. The supper that is the Lord's is done in remembrance of his sacrifice. The supper that is the Lord is done in remembrance of the new covenant in his blood. And this work and covenant bring us together as one. The rich and the poor become one in the presence of God. And this is what will happen in the judgment, right? For all who believe, one day we will stand before the Lord in judgment for believers and we will have nothing with us, no earthly treasure. All we will have is Christ. And that's what the Lord's Supper represents. All we have is Christ. The forgiveness of our sin through Christ given for us, that's why we give. Dying for us, that's why we die to ourselves. Buried for us, that's why we forgive one another. Raised for us, that's why we live in Christ. So that we might be witnesses to the grace of God available for all who believe and receive Christ by faith. That's what the Lord's death represents. The humility and obedience of Christ who did all for the glory of his Father. The Lord's Supper in the present remembers the Lord's death in the past and lastly looks to the Lord's judgment in the future. Look with me at verse 27. The apostle says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Warren Wearsby says that Paul did not say that we had to be worthy to partake of the supper, but only that we should partake in a worthy manner. 
Because it's not about our worthiness, our status, our eliteness. The gospel says that we're not worthy. Sin makes us unworthy. We are defiled, desecrated, totally depraved without Christ. Just look at this world if you don't believe that. But God, by his grace and Holy Spirit, empowers us to partake in a worthy manner based on the worthiness of Christ alone, who joins us at this table. With me at verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Again, Warren Wearsby says that the Corinthians neglected to examine themselves, but they were experts at examining everybody else. What does this examination require? Not for us to examine our own worthiness. Christ alone is our worthiness. But we are to examine our attitudes. We are to prepare to worship the Lord by looking upon the Lord. The psalmist prayed this way, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's how we examine our attitude for worship. That's how God would lead us to Christ day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Does my attitude reflect Christ's attitude who sacrificially gave himself for another, for me, for us? Am I prepared to give likewise to my brothers and sisters no matter who they are? Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Discerning the body may refer to the body of Christ. It may also refer to the body of the church. As they're gathering together, they're not paying attention and discerning the needs of those who have nothing sitting at table nearby. The Lord says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This text moves from commendation to a word about condemnation. And the apostle does not want the church to be like the world in their worship because the world will be and already is condemned. Jesus says in John chapter three, verse 18, whoever believes in him, that's in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus said that, not me. That's the world's future without Christ, but the church, while in the world, is not of the world. And we know this because God disciplines us. Hebrews 12, verse six says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Thank God that he loves us so much that he disciplines us and he corrects us, he preserves us so that we are not condemned. Romans chapter eight, verse one, says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ 
Jesus? Is the Spirit of God calling you into Christ Jesus today? If we are in Christ Jesus, God will discipline us. If we are not being disciplined or corrected by God, we should be greatly concerned. For those who partook of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, with unworthy attitudes in Corinth, God disciplined them. Some became sick, yes, some died, yes. This was the Lord's judgment, the Lord's discipline because they belong to the Lord. If you do not belong to the Lord and partake of the supper, you're already condemned. Judgment's coming, Jesus is coming. And I urge you, hear the proclamation of this table today. Repent and turn to Christ by faith. But if you are in Christ and you partake in an unworthy attitude, God will discipline you. If you make much of yourself in worship, God will discipline you because he loves you. Verse 33 says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's what we yell from our kitchen table. Wait, don't eat yet, kids, stop. Apostle says, wait. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. In other words, if you come to worship, if you come to the Lord's table for your own personal interests, the apostle says, stay home. Don't come. This table is not for your personal interests. This worship, this fellowship is not for me. It's for us together in Christ. The Lord's Supper in the present remembers the Lord's death in the past and looks to the Lord's judgment in the future. Thank you again for listening to this message. I pray that God would accomplish His purpose in you through the preaching, hearing, receiving, and believing of His Word. If you wish to share any comments or questions about the message you have heard, please call Southside at 256-353-8814 or visit us on the web at southsidebaptist.net. Also, make sure to subscribe or follow this podcast to receive a new message each week.